Lord, I thank you that every day we have on earth is a gift from you, is given to us by you, King Jesus. And I pray that right now, the spirit that gave everything we see around us life would come and give life to our hearts, give attentiveness to our ears. Help us, Lord. Um, even yesterday, sitting for long teaching, and I was getting sleepy. And Lord, I know it's easy to get sleepy, get distracted. Um, I just pray that you would work and move and, and help our ears to, to hear what you have for us today. And um, I pray that your, your word would transform our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to start off with a question this morning for you kids. Are you more likely to obey your mom and dad if they are in front of you watching you or if they're not watching you? Yeah. Good. Good answer. I think that's usually true. Why do you think? What might happen if you disobey and they see you? Get a spanking, yeah. Or you might get disciplined. Maybe it's not a spanking, but... Maybe hot sauce in your mouth. Hot sauce in your mouth if you talk. Yeah, all kinds of cruel and unusual punishments here. Okay, well, it is easier to obey usually when our parents are with us. Um, now, this isn't just with kids. A lot of people straighten their shoulders up a little bit and put a little extra spring in their step when the boss is around. I don't know, Ken, do you ever do that, or Michael? No? No? Okay. <laughs> or what about if we instinctively slow down when a cop is parked right there? Gary's like, yep. Yeah, I do too. I'm like, what did I do? What did I do? I, I, I didn't do anything. He doesn't care. He's probably just on Facebook or something. That's reactive, yeah. <laughs> I've been trained. We're more likely to obey in the presence of authority. It's just the reality. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, we learn that Moses is about to die. Now you're like, Why? wait, we, we already went through Deuteronomy. Why are we going back there? I thought we were in Philippians. Well, we're always going to go back to the Torah, probably every Sunday, because that's the fountain of everything, right? But you'll see the connection, I think, here in a second. Moses is about to die. Now, we've learned, we know that Moses was the leader of Israel. Under God's authority, Moses led the people. And, and though Moses led them, they did not listen to Moses very well. Even in his presence. One time they wanted to kill him. At least one time we know of. It might have been others. They did not like Moses' authority. And so they disobeyed Moses and they disobeyed the Lord even while he was there. Okay? In Deuteronomy 31, if you want, you can open your Bibles there. I'm going to point out a few things in Deuteronomy 30 before we move to Philippians. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 27, Moses says to the people, I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. I know you guys are terrible kids, basically. I've, I've been with you now for a long time. And he says, if you have been rebellious against the Lord while I'm still alive with you, how much more are you going to rebel after I die? Do you see what's going on? 
here, the logic, kids, do you understand? Moses is saying, you disobeyed our God a lot while I was here, and now I'm going to die. How much more are you going to disobey God? It's like the mom who says to her kids, if you're totally out of control and crazy while I'm here with you, how much more crazy are you going to be if I'm not around? Now, when someone obeys an authority, when that authority is not around, like you obey your parents when your parents are gone, and what does that show, or what can that show? It shows that um, the, the words of the authority that we're obeying have had an effect on our hearts, especially if we're still obeying, not out of fear of being caught, but out of trust that those words or that command is for our good and for the good of our neighbors. So when we obey in the absence of authority, it shows that the law that we're obeying, whatever that might be, is on our hearts. And that's what Paul's going to say in our passage this morning. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. You can keep your thumb in Deuteronomy if you turn there. We're going to look at Philippians 2 for a second. These verses are the two verses we're going to look at today. Verses 12 to 13, I'll read them. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, you have always obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act for his good pleasure. So, did you notice any similarities in verse 12 there to what I've been saying about obedience in somebody's absence. The Philippians are obeying the Lord even when Paul is absent from them. In fact, their obedience to the Lord Jesus only grew in the absence of Paul's presence. So Paul was a really important apostle and a teacher, and he led many Philippians to the Lord. And when he left, the Philippians didn't say, now we can just go sin again. Whew, Paul's gone. Bring out the, you know, the sin, right? They, they didn't say that. No, they obeyed all the more in his absence, which showed that God's word had actually had an effect on their hearts. And it wasn't Paul changing them. It was the spirit in them. They're like a tribe of natives that hear the gospel from a missionary and they get saved but they only really start to grow spiritually after the missionary leaves have you ever read a missionary story or heard of a missionary story like that maybe the missionary was with these people for a long time and the people let the missionary do everything the missionary played the music the missionary preached the sermons the missionary led the kids choir and led the ministry and that ministry and that ministry. and then all of a sudden the missionary got really really sick and had to leave and everybody's like oh what are we going to do oh i guess we got to lead and that actually happens and then the church grows and leaders rise up okay this happened on a massive scale in china in 1949 in china Emperor Mao Zedong rose to power and kicked every missionary out or killed them. All right? Have you ever heard the story of Eric Liddell, um, the runner, who was 
died for his faith there in China. And everybody's saying, what's this church going to do? Well, guess what? There's more Christians in China now than any nation on the earth. It exploded. It tripled in growth from 1949 and through the 27 years of Mao Zedong's reign of terror. And that wasn't because Mao Zedong had, uh, was friendly to churches, no. Pastors went to prison and were murdered by the, by the thousands. And yet, more kept rising up because the Spirit of God was on the move. He was real. He's alive. He's unstoppable. And he changes hearts. And that's how the Philippians experienced it. They had had their hearts changed by Jesus. And when their missionary left, when Paul left, they obeyed. They obeyed Jesus, not out of fear of Paul, but out of fear of the Lord and love for him. But not Israel. Many years before, Israel had been rebellious while Moses, their leader, was with them. And so they were much more rebellious after he died. In fact, they rebelled against the Lord and they grumbled and they committed all sorts of evil while he was living and even more while they were dying. And, and if you look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, if you still get your finger there, flip the page. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, calls the children of Israel a warped and crooked or a, a crooked and depraved generation. Why? Well, because ultimately their hearts were not what we call circumcised. Weird, gross imagery, but this idea that there's sin that needs to be cut away. Sinful, fleshly desires that need to be cut away from their hearts, and only the Spirit can do that. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, a chapter before Deuteronomy 31, said there's coming a day when God will do that for his people. There's coming a day where God will circumcise their hearts, and they'll love the Lord, and they'll obey, and they'll live. But it hasn't happened yet, and Moses knows it hasn't happened yet. That's why he says, when I leave, it's going to be... You're bad now. It's going to be a disaster. God, when are you going to work? When are you going to work? These people are not your children. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They're, they're not acting like your children. They're a crooked and depraved generation. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking to mostly Gentile Philippians. And we see that these Philippians have had the heart change that Israel did not have, okay? They obey the Lord, even in the absence of Paul. Look down at verse 15 in Philippians 2. They shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Where did we hear that? Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. And they're not to grumble. Do you see that there in Philippians 2? Do not grumble, just like Israel grumbled. God was at work in their hearts, the Holy Spirit of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that, that the later prophets said it was going to be the Spirit who would do this heart circumcision work, and the Spirit has done that work in the Philippians. And we'll come back to this big time in chapter 3. We're going to see that in Philippians 3. But I just want you to see that God is at work in your heart if you trust in Jesus. And moving into this passage today, we're going to see three things. If God is at work, then we must work, we must fear, and we must tremble. So here's the, the main idea today. Because God is at work in you, if, if you trust Jesus, God's at work in you. Because God's at work in you, work, fear, and tremble for him. 
So again, look at verses 12 to 13. I'm going to read that for you. Verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work, fear, tremble. Because God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So point one. First, because God is at work, you work. Because God is at work, work. Now, work out your salvation, he says. Now, at first glance, do any of you find that a little bit startling? Work out your salvation. Do it. Wait, I thought I was saved by God's grace apart from works. I thought I didn't have to work hard to get to heaven. Well, Paul says that in his letter to the Ephesian church, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Many of you may have heard this verse. It's very famous. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Now, here Paul says, work out your salvation. But there he said, grace saves you. Is Paul contradicting himself? Did all these years in prison kind of addle with his head and make him forget the gospel? I don't think so. I don't think Paul's contradicting himself. See, there's several ways that we could view the command here. One way is to picture God in heaven holding out a, a carrot called heaven in front of you, okay? Dangling this carrot in front of you, and he's saying, work for it, jump for it, hire. Ooh, that was pretty good. Hire. Get, you know, got keep going. Work, work, work. Well, imagine if you did grab that carrot. What would be the first thing you did? Look at me, I got the carrot. You guys all can't jump like I can. I'm way better than you. No, Paul already has said in Ephesians, it's grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by jumping hard, not by working hard, not by keeping your nose clean, not by works. So there's another way we could view what he's saying here in Philippians. And I think this is the correct way. The idea that we are to work out our salvation, it means that we are to live our lives in a way that shows that we have salvation. In other words, you have been saved. If you trust Jesus, you've been saved by the grace of God. You've been rescued from hell and from sin and from slavery to sin. You've been saved. Work out what that means into every area of your life. So if you truly have salvation, if you've truly been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, if you've truly come with your life under the reign of King Jesus and you want to live for him, then you're not going to remain apathetic and passive in your Christian life. It's impossible. God's work of grace in saving you, it will lead you to work out that salvation in your life. You'll actually live like someone who's been saved from darkness and brought into light. Now, Paul actually explains this idea a little bit with his own life. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, he's, or verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, remember, Paul was a murderer going to kill Christians, and God's grace said no. Stopped him in his tracks, knocked him off his horse. Jesus speaks to him from heaven. Okay, God's grace changed Paul. Like, Paul wasn't doing good things when God saved him. Like, oh, wow, you're such a great... No, he's going to murder Christians, drag them off to prison, breathing out murderous threats, and God says, enough. I'm saving this dirty criminal. All right? This Pharisee who thinks he's better than everybody, he's mine. And I've got a plan for his life. He's going to suffer much for me, and he's going to spread my name to the ends of the earth. Okay? So, by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. In other words, Paul didn't get the grace of God and say, Wow. Thanks for saving me, God. I'll just go home and live like normal. The grace of God would have been in vain. It would have had no effect on his life if that was the case. But no. Paul says, what does the grace of God do when he experiences it so radically? Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than all of them. Who's them? Other Christian workers, other apostles. Paul worked harder than all of them. But whoa, is he bragging? I'm the hardest worker of everybody. I've been to jail more times than anyone. I've been beat up for the gospel more than anyone else. You want to see dedication to Jesus? Look at my life. But not I, but the grace of God in me. So Paul says, but don't look at me. It's God at work in my life. I worked harder than anybody, but not I. The grace of God that saved him became in him a power that changed him from the inside out, and it led him to work hard. His efforts to advance the kingdom of God, they were more intense than any Christian alive at that time, harder than all of them, yet not I not I, he says. He's not bragging about how good of a worker he is. He's bragging about Jesus. You want to sing songs about my ministry? No. He must increase. I must decrease. Sing about his grace. Everything. When you looked at Paul, you saw Jesus. And a man set on fire by what Jesus had done for him. Paul never got over the Damascus Road. And Jesus' grace to him and his mercy. So now Paul says in Philippians 2. So work out your salvation. You've been graced with salvation. Work harder than anyone. (laughs) Work it out. For it is God who works in you. So this is Paul's huge motivation to us for trying to follow the Lord. Work because God is in you. God is at work in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians, I quoted it earlier, chapter 2, 8, and 9, the famous grace not works passage says something really interesting in verse 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by working, not by works, lest anyone should boast. For, verse 10, we are his 
workmanship. Created, hear the new creation word? New creation church. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we would walk in them. So you've been saved by grace unto good works. Those who've been saved, God works in us for his glory. That we would do good works to put his goodness on display and his love and who he is. And so God is at work in all true believers. He's creating good works in their lives by helping us will and act and live for his good pleasure. So we'll talk more about that in our conclusion. But first, I want to focus on the next two points. Because God's at work in us, we are to work out our salvation with fear and then trembling. We're going to look at fear. Because God is at work, work with fear. Fear is at the heart. Fear of God is at the heart of what it means to be a true believer Put it this way, if you have no fear of the Lord, then you're not a Christian. We see that truth all over the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. For example, in Paul's climactic summary of the wicked in Romans chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 36 verse 1. Paul's saying, describing all the wickedness of humans, and he says the climactic summary there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear the Lord. But for all of God's people, Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, one helpful verse that I've found for understanding the fear of the Lord and what does it mean to fear God is, is found in Exodus 20, verse 20. Okay, In Exodus 20, Moses says to his people Israel, they, they've just heard the voice of God like thunder on Mount Sinai. The mountain's shaking. Fire is blazing on the top of the mountain. God is there. They've never seen anything like this. And they are terrified. And they're trembling with fear. And they're saying, let us not hear this voice anymore. Take it away. Go up there and, and get the words for us, Moses, because we will die if we continue to hear this voice. They're terrified. And Moses, Deuteronomy 20, or Exodus 20, verse 20 says, do not be afraid. Yeah, right, Moses. Do not be afraid. Don't fear, he says. God has come to test you. Do you really fear him, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Did Moses just contradict himself there? Don't be afraid. God has come to make you fear him. Okay, the Bible's all contradictory. No, there's actually a different nuance to fear that Moses is drawing on here. Don't be afraid. God's come to make you fear him. Moses is saying to Israel, don't be paralyzed with fear and trembling. Don't be timid and too frightened to move in the presence of the Lord. Fear him by obeying him, by bowing in reverence before him. Reverence him. That's the idea of fear here. Not 
this terrified trembling that can't even move in his presence and doesn't want to be near him. No, don't be afraid like that. Reverence him. Bow. Obey. Fear him that way. Not with a terror. Tremble before him with reverence and respect. He is a consuming fire. He is not safe. He's not a tame God that you can keep in your pocket or like a genie in the bottle that you can rub whenever you need help and he'll give your wishes to you. He's not a cosmic ATM that we go to when we need cash. Here's some illustrations to try to help us grasp what fearing the Lord means. We humans, we should have an, a healthy respect of fire, right? God actually compares his presence all over the Bible to be a consuming fire. He gave us fire to show what he is like. You don't put your hand in the fire. That's foolish. You, you don't want fire uncontained in your house. You must keep it in its proper place or you and all of your house will be consumed. So you and I, we fear fire. We respect fire. You respect its power. And yet, fire is a tremendous good. It warms our house. It's warming our house right now because it's contained in a wood stove. It cooks our food. It heats our homes. It even warms our hearts a little bit when we sit and watch it crackle on the fireplace. And in a similar way, our Lord is good. He is the source of life and of every living thing that you can imagine. Every good comes from him, including fire. And yet, like fire, he demands respect. Human evil is consumed in his presence. If we come into his presence with evil, we have right to fear with terror. But if we come in awe and reverence for who he is, there is no reason to have the terror that Moses is telling the people not to have here in Deuteronomy. Another illustration would be a thunderstorm, right? We watch a thunderstorm from the safety of our porch, usually. And in the same way, we come into the presence of the living God who is infinitely stronger than any thunderstorm from the safety of the cross of Jesus Christ where he dealt with our sin. He is mightier than the mightiest storm. In the famous story by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a famous quote. Maybe you've heard it. There's a little girl named Lucy, and she asks a question about Aslan, about meeting Aslan, the Jesus-like lion figure in the story. She says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Okay. Fair question. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. He tears the evil white witch to pieces. He's not safe, but he's good. And because Jesus is good, he has poured out his grace upon him. And so we work for him out of a holy fear. A fear 
a reverence for who he is that's accompanied by trembling. That's the third point this morning. Third, because God is at work, work with trembling. Now, why did I break up fear and trembling here? Doesn't that sound like that might be the same thing? Well, perhaps it's, 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 it's quite similar, but I broke them up because I think that the passage in the Old Testament that Paul is pulling this phrase fear, of tre- fear and trembling from, this, the passage actually breaks them up. Psalm 2. I'd encourage you to turn there. I'm going to read it. Um, in Psalm 2, God is talking about how he set up his Messiah as king. Messiah means anointed king. He says in verse 6, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then the psalm starts talking as if the Messiah king is talking. Okay? So God's talking, and now the Messiah's talking. And the Messiah says in verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, and now this messianic king says what God said to him. So it gets a little complicated. The, God is talking, verse 6. The Messiah starts talking and says, let me tell you what God told me. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Some translations might say rejoice with trembling. Do you hear that? Fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So basically in this psalm, God is talking to the kings of the earth and he's saying, listen, kings, you think you're all big and tough as you rule your puny little kingdoms and you break my word and you jockey with one another for the position of top dog? Guess what? I've installed my messianic king in Zion on my mountain, and he's going to crush your rebellion against him. So, because you have no hope of victory against this untouchable king, bow before him, kiss him, this idea of do homage to him, bend the knee to my Messiah. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then verse 11, he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice and celebrate his rule with trembling. The son of God who is enthroned as king is the Lord to be served with fear and trembling there in Psalm Psalm 2. Not a terror, a trembling terror, but a joyful, a quivering with delight. Okay? A trembling with delight. Here's how Psalm 2 connects to Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, we learned about the exaltation of God's messianic king. Remember last week, if you were here, the, the, the king who became the lowest, God has made the highest. Therefore, God has exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and on under the earth in the realm of the dead that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has highly exalted him. He's on a throne. 
He's the messianic king of Psalm 2. I have installed my king in Zion, God's place, my holy hill. Jesus has been exalted as king. Therefore, notice chapter 12, verse 1, or 12, verse 12. Chap, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12 of Philippians starts with the word therefore. Because the Messiah is exalted, because he's the highest, therefore, work for him with fear and trembling. Chapter 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13. Work for him with fear and trembling. That's Psalm 2 in a nutshell. Because the Messiah is the king, serve him with fear and trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Be filled with awe and reverence at his name and quiver with delight at the thought he rules the world. He rules the world. He is the king, and he is coming again. And believe me, we will tremble with delight when King Jesus splits the sky one day with his glory. We will tremble with delight. And you will know what it means to fear but not be afraid. It will be a raging fire purging the earth. That's at least the imagery that we're given and will emerge from the flames a new creation, no evil, a world of love. Everything that was ruined by Genesis 3 will be restored when our king returns. So again, the main idea, because God is at work in you, work, fear, and tremble for him. And as we work towards the end today of our passage. I I just want to draw your attention to a couple more things in these verses. Notice how God's at work in verse 13. He's working in you both to will and to act for his good pleasure. Does that mean you're a robot? Well, do you feel like a robot? Do you feel like you make choices each day, willing and acting? I I do. What's going on here? We, We do make choices. We're accountable to God for the choices we make. And yet, if you're a Christian, that means that the Holy Spirit of Jesus is in you, and you have had foreign desires implanted into your heart. Desires that were not there before you knew the Lord. Suddenly, you're starting to be attracted to Jesus, whereas before you weren't. That means the Spirit's at work. Suddenly, sin is starting to bother you, whereas in the past it might not have. At least the consequences might have bothered you. I know if I get plastered on the weekend, I'm not going to like the consequences, but it's still worth it. But now you see, no, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You're like, I want to be controlled by the Spirit. I don't want to escape this world. I want to know the Lord. You want to follow Jesus, not perfectly, but truly. You want to start to act for his good pleasure. The Spirit is doing that work if you trust Jesus. He's working new creation in your heart. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are a new creation. You're not alone in your Christian life. All of our actions, they start in our hearts. And if we've trusted in Jesus, we have a new heart. Yes, we battle sin, but our new heart has a new desire to know the Lord and to follow the Lord and to work for his good pleasure. When we fall down, we get up because the Spirit says, Keep going. God loves you. We'll get there in a minute. Keep working for him. There is an end in sight. There is an end. 
called resurrection. That's the other thing I want to draw out, though. There's another thing I want to draw out before we make some specific applications. You will act, work, and fear, and tremble all for God's good pleasure. Notice it doesn't say here, work so that God will bring you to heaven. It says, work for his pleasure. You work for his smile. Labor for his words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not for his acceptance, not for his love, but for his joy. Don't work for God's love. Don't work for acceptance. Work for his joy. Work for his good pleasure. Have you ever had someone in your life you really wanted to please? I just want to please this person more than anything else. Maybe it was your father growing up. Maybe you felt like you couldn't please that person. Have you ever felt like that? I can never measure up. I always fall short. He's always disappointed in me. Maybe it was your mother. You just felt like you could never do enough. You're always guilty. You're always on the defensive. You always felt the need to justify every action and thought. Maybe it was a boss at your first job. You really wanted to make him happy. Some of you might be like, nope, I don't give a rip what my boss thinks. But quite often, even the attitude of not caring what other people think starts with a desire to please people that gets burnt and we get hopeless. I, just, I don't even care anymore because I can't make people happy, so I'm just done with it. To heck with what they think. We're sick of failing, so we train ourselves not to care. But deep, deep down, even if it's locked up deep in our hearts, even if we say we don't care, listen, we are hardwired to want to hear our daddy say, well done, I am pleased with you. Like Jesus heard from his father at his baptism when the heavens opened and there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. We are hardwired to want to hear that. And if we don't get it from our earthly fathers, we are on a quest to hear that from anywhere we can. Fathers, your well done to your sons is so important. We're wired for it. Now in a healthy home, a child knows that his parents love him no matter what. He knows his parents are for him, not against him. Even in moments of painful discipline, a child knows he'll never be rejected by daddy or mommy. And yet a child in a healthy home, he knows that he can bring his parents grief or joy by his actions. That's what's going on here in Philippians 2.13. If you're a Christian, you have the love of the Father. If you've trusted in Jesus, his Son, God has saved you, he loves you, and he accepts you, not based on your performance, because, boy, that goes up and down, doesn't it? Doing good, he loves me. Doing bad, he loves me not. No, he loves you because Jesus did good for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus paid for your sins. That's why the Father loves you. If you trust the Son, He loves you. You're part of His family. 
And now we work for his smile. We make every effort to please him until the final day of salvation. And so as we move into some specific application, I want you to think about something a minute. God is at work in you for his good pleasure. That means his word found in the Bible and his spirit are both working. As you hear the word and as you submit to the spirit, they're working to transform you to be like Jesus. Daily, God is helping you will and act so that he gets joy and glory in and through your life. Is that selfish for God to do? Is God manipulating you? Well, think about how it works in parenting. Do parents work so that their kids bring them pleasure? That's a tricky question, actually. Think about that one. Parents can't get inside their children like God's Spirit can get inside us. We wish we could change their desires, but we can't. But we try and use our words and actions to help our children change from the inside out. Or we should, at least. Sometimes this might be selfish, but it doesn't have to be. Think about it. This is an illustration. When I was young, I argued with my mom constantly. Constantly. I did not trust her. I was always right in my own eyes. I was a very arrogant young man. Very arrogant. And I'm not proud of that. And it brought great grief to my parents. They loved me deeply, and they labored hard to help me change. They used discipline. There was some fear and trembling involved at times, especially when dad came home from work. They used their words. They pleaded with me to heed wisdom. And when I did obey, occasionally, they were pleased. Was that selfish for them? Were they manipulating me? No, they weren't. A wise son brings joy to his mother. A foolish son brings grief. No, they wanted the pleasure of seeing me obey the Lord. They wanted what was best for me, and I didn't actually know what was best for me, even though I thought I did time and time again. They were just trying, they weren't just trying to manipulate my behavior to make their life easier. Stop it! You're annoying me! You ever heard a parent say that? You ever wanted to say that as a parent or to someone? Just Stop it! And if they don't, you get louder. You're manipulating. You're treating the child like an object getting in the way of your pleasure. That's not love. That's manipulation. And we can all do it. But it's far different than discipline and then training that has the good of the child in mind. I want to see, I want to have joy in seeing you walk in obedience to the Lord, and to your parents. The same dynamic is at play in Christian discipling. Discipleship says you don't, know what you don't know what's best for you. That's what Christian discipleship says. But God does. Discipleship is not about God manipulating you to obey him, treating you as an object to be used to make him happy. No, it's about transformation. God is working in you for his pleasure, yes, but when you do what pleases him, it's for your good. And it's what you were wired to do, to live for his smile, to hear his well done. 
And he wants that for you. He wants to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he's given you his spirit to work Jesus in you. Because guess who's always getting his father's smile? Jesus Christ. And one day, you will be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus. You'll look like Jesus. Not carbon copies, but you will perfectly love God and love neighbor just like Jesus does. And you will forever hear, this is Carl, my son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has won that for us at the cross. He's purchased the Father's love. That's where we're headed. But we work for it now, too. We want to hear it now, even as we know we'll hear it for eternity. So I want to close with a final call to work. The Christian life is not a walk in the park. It's not a luxurious float down a river of ease and comfort. The Bible compares it to warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. It's compared to a race where only the finishers get a reward. Run in such a way so that you get the prize. It's compared to farming, which is hard work, right? If you've ever farmed, the harvest isn't seen overnight. It comes at the end of the age. So let's be a people as a church and in our homes who work, labor, not to earn God's love. We already have that. Make the measure of God's love for you the cross of Jesus Christ. Can he love you more than that? He gave his life for you. That's a lot of love. That's the measure of God's love. Does he love me? Look at Jesus. Hanging there for you. He loves you. He wouldn't be there if he didn't. He loves you. The love of the cross doesn't go up or down with your performance. The cross doesn't become less on your lesser days. It doesn't become greater on your better days. The cross remains the same. The love of God for you in Christ never changes. But from that position of security, knowing we're loved, those who truly know the Lord know that they can grieve him. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we were sealed for redemption. And Paul says, don't do that. Make every effort to please him. We work for our Father's smile. We feel his smile when we do things he made us to do. We feel his smile when we work hard at the doctor's office. We feel his smile when we lift lots of boxes at Big Lots. We feel his smile when we wipe a kid's bottom. How else is it going to get done? God cares for children through the hands of a mother. We feel God's smile when we do what he's created us to do. And I remember I brought up Eric Liddell earlier, that guy who got martyred in China. He was a runner before he became a missionary. He said, I love to run, right? When I run, I feel God smile. It's the same with everything. When we live and do what God wired us to do, we feel his smile. When life is lived for the glory of God, all of life is holy. We feel his smile when we spend ourselves for others like Jesus did at the cross. We feel God's smile when we say no to the temptation to lust and we close the internet browser down and jerk our head away from a second glance. We feel God's smile when we trust him enough to give generously to the work of his kingdom, even when we know, don't know whether we'll have enough 
for the future. We don't need enough for tomorrow. We have a Father who holds tomorrow. We feel God smile when we say no to the temptation to eat more food than we need to. We feel his smile when we do our best at our work, even when nobody sees and cares. Our Father cares. He sees. When we feel his smile, when we say no to things that we want so that we can help others with what they need. And finally, we feel his smile when we trust his wisdom about life and relationships, even when we don't understand completely. And one day, as I said earlier, we will feel his smile for all eternity. And I long for that day when what the Spirit has started in us and is working in us will be complete. Operation completed. Joel is perfect. Not because of my own works, but because of God's grace at work in me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would stir within each one here this morning and those who can't be with us a desire, a deep desire to work, to work with fear and trembling for you. Help us. Help us to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to run the race with joy and be finishers. Help us to be like the hardworking crop, the farmer, who gets the first share of the crop. Father, we want to labor for you. And I pray that you would work that in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.